Oh, good morning, everyone. If you would turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. And I will just open us to the word of prayer, ask God's blessing on the ministry of his word today. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are just thankful again for this day that you've set apart for your people to gather, to gather in fellowship and in worship of you, Lord, in every way, in song, ministry of the word. At the communion table, Lord, our time together in fellowship. Praise you for that grace. Lord God, you've given us your word that has revealed you to us, that has reminded us of what you have done for us, and instructs us, Lord, on how we should respond to your great grace. We thank you for that gift to us, and we pray, please, Empower your word by your spirit this morning to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the last time we were in Romans 5, we continued our exploration of the depths of the gospel uh, by working our way through verses 1 through 5. And as we did, if you remember the last time we were together, um, we saw that there were three distinct benefits that come from being justified by faith. Uh, we talked about how we have peace with God which is that peace that comes as a result of the fact that we were at one time enemies and at war with God, but by trusting in Christ, he reconciles us to himself. And as a result of that, we experience a genuine, true shalom, that everlasting peace, an unbreakable peace with God. Then, additionally, on top of having peace with God, we're given this stability, where it tells us in that passage that Jesus himself ushers us into his grace on which we stand. It's a foundation for life which we live victoriously every day and confidently because of what he has done for us in making our relationship right with the Father. And then, thirdly, we experience joy as a result of what God has done for us in justifying us by faith in Christ. And it's not a temporary feeling of happiness that can come and go as a result of circumstance like we have in this world, but it's a deep and abiding bliss that comes from knowing that our sufferings have purpose in them, if you remember. Sufferings have the purpose of working out endurance and character within us, and then also it gives us that confident hope that God will fulfill his promise to us. He will never put us to shame. And that's a great, great thing to have, especially knowing the way that this world goes, and that there's so much that people put their hope in that does end up bringing them to shame, because it is nothing, it is worthless. Now, as sweet as this short list of blessings is to our ears, as we consider it this morning, uh, we're going to turn our attention to an even more important short list. And it's going to be a short list of three truths about God himself that I believe will deepen our love for him and will further strengthen our walk with him 
uh, as we journey through life. So let's take a look at verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. And I'll read it in its entirety and then we'll walk through it together. So starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So as I mentioned, we're going to look at this passage and mine out of it three truths about God. And the first truth that we see in this passage is that God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. We see that in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, in one of the early scenes of the movie The Lord of the Rings, we see that uh, image of Gandalf coming down the road in his wagon as he's entering the Shire, making his way to where the hobbits are. And as he's approaching, the young Frodo hobbit, uh, Frodo Baggins, comes running up and with a little bit of a snarky attitude says to him, You're late! And Gandalf, of course, responds with that memorable line, Frodo Baggins, a wizard, is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Now, that may or may not be true about wizards in this land that Tolkien created for his book, but we can say with 100% accuracy, 100% biblical accuracy, that that is exactly true about God. He is never late, and he is never early. He is precisely on time in everything that he does. In other words, God's timing is always perfect. And in the context of this section of the book of Romans, it's the timing of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that Paul has in mind here. Notice, when did Christ die on the cross for us? According to verse 6. While we were still weak. God didn't send Jesus to be our substitute as the sacrificial lamb when we had gotten our act together. He didn't send Christ when we had already pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and got spiritually strong before the Lord. No, Jesus came and died for us while we were still weak. And that word weak, of course, is what we know it to be. It means without strength, helpless, feeble, completely unable. That's the, that's the point that's being driven by Paul by using this word weak. And not only weak, but also when we were ungodly, if you look at verse 6. The two are tied together. Weakness and ungodliness are the same characteristic of that which he's describing here for the ones that Christ died for. 
the weak and the ungodly, those guilty, sinful rebels. And in light of this context, then, we can affirm that God's timing is perfect and that he always acts at the moment of our greatest need. And our greatest need, at, at any time before we come to Christ, is forgiveness, is the new birth. And it's the gift of faith to trust him for salvation. And I love the way Matthew Henry puts it. He describes this passage, or this, this whole idea of that in this way. He says, it is the manner of God to help at a dead lift. I love that word picture because it, it, it shows that God wasn't um, waiting to step in and assist us once we got some spiritual momentum going. And he didn't just add like his fingers to the bar as a spotter would in a gym when somebody is straining to push through the last rep in a bench press. You've seen that before, right? A guy's straining, or a girl's straining, and somebody's behind them and just putting their fingers underneath the bar just to help them get that last rep through. That's not what's in view here of what God did for us. God acts on our behalf and lifts us up to new life when we are nothing but lifeless dead weight, completely immovable, completely inert. And what came to mind is that show, My 600-Pound Life, as sad as that is. Now, my mom is 96 years old, and uniquely, she finds this show very interesting, and she watches it every week. Um, she's just fascinated by the size of these people, which all of us, I think, are in, in some respect. But if you watch that show, what you are seeing are people that are so heavy and incapacitated that on their own, they can do nothing. If they had to be moved from their house, they actually have scenes of firemen coming in and needing to break down walls and using hoyers and such to lift them up and out of the house because they are incapable. They are complete dead weight. And that's a word picture, as strange as that is, that's a word picture of us in, a, in the deadness of our sin. We are immovable. We cannot help ourselves. And if left in that state we would perish in that state. Just as they would, if we left them alone, they would eventually succumb to the nature, natural course of life. But thankfully, God sent his son to die on the cross at just the right time so that fallen mankind in his weakness could be saved. And in doing it that way, and with the timing that he did it, four incredible objectives are achieved. One, God receives all the glory. There's nothing that anyone adds to what God does in salvation. He does the full work. Second, his grace is supremely magnified. There's no better example of unmerited love than what we see in the cross of Christ. He didn't come because we somehow earned that blessing. Thirdly, it removes our ability to boast completely. We're totally humbled before the cross when we, when we recognize the truth of what God did for us there. And then fourthly, our motivation to worship and obey him is eternally energized. We will be in glory for eternity, worshiping this God who saved us from the dead weight of our sin. But the perfection of God's timing isn't simply limited 
to the once-for-all-time act of Jesus dying on the cross for sinful, weak humanity. This principle of God's perfect timing is just as true in our everyday lives as, as it is with regards to redemption. For example, all of us are always on the lookout for God to take action in our lives, especially with regards to answered prayer. When we pray, we're always looking for that evidence that God is at work, aren't we? We present our requests to the Lord, but then we become anxious and discouraged when he doesn't respond in the time frame that we want him to, or that we expect him to. We throw a prayer up, and we, we're thinking we're going to get that answer in seconds, just like we go to the microwave and get a hot meal in one minute. That's often our mindset when it comes to prayer. And the longer we wait, the more apt we are to be like the Israelites of old, who in the midst of their distress, what would they often cry out? How long, O Lord? How long? That was the cry of the Jew, waiting. Or just like the apostles who asked Jesus about the timing of the restoration of the kingdom before he ascended, we start to ask God when it is that we're going to receive answers to our prayer. And if the wait's especially long, we can even begin to wonder if he hears us at all. Or if prayer, God forbid, is even worth doing at all. Doesn't that, doesn't temptation come into our mind to think that way? And that's, it's, it's horrible because one, we know that that still is a vestige of our fallen nature to even think in those terms. But there's also evidence that we must be reminded that we have an enemy that is constantly encircling us that whispers those kind of doubts into our minds and hearts that we need to be conscious of. As Genesis has told us in chapter 4, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Right? So Satan, being the father of that, is always crouching in some manner at our door to try to fill our heads with doubt about this God that we have all said that we trust in. But to all this anxiety and frustration, Jesus' response to the disciples' request is most fitting, regardless if we're talking about the timing of the kingdom or whether we're talking about the timing of a loved one's healing or conversion. Listen to what Jesus says in Acts 1-7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. To us, when we're forced to wait, it can seem like it's taking forever. But we know from the scriptures that what? A day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And with regards to salvation, he gives us this assurance through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. That's us. We count him to be slow, right? But he's not slow, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christ saved us when we were weak and helpless and deadweight. We were each born by God's Spirit and granted the gift of faith at precisely the right time in our lives. No sooner and no later. It happened on His timetable. This is as true for us, and it's just as true for those that we're praying for. And if salvation or healing or any other kind of provision or deliverance is God's will for that loved one that we're praying for, it will come to pass precisely when he ordains that it will come to pass. Waiting for God is part and parcel of what it means to be a member of the people of God. 
He acts on his timetable, not ours. And there's plenty of examples of this. Look in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus. How long before he touched, or before the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment walking through the crowd, how long was it before she was healed of the issue of blood? Twelve years. Did God not know of her need for that whole time? No, he absolutely knew. And yet, for his purposes, she was called to endure that period for 12 years. But she was healed in his timing. There was a cripple at the pool of Bethesda, and it tells us that he was crippled for 38 years. Jesus is outside of Bethany, and he hears that Lazarus is sick and on the verge of death. And he waits two days before he leaves. And then when he shows up, it says that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So that's at least six days that Jesus made them wait from the time he got the message to come and see his brother. And yet he made Mary and Martha and Lazarus wait at least six days for a purpose. And just think, ultimately, of Israel. Israel waited thousands of years for their Messiah. And yet, Galatians tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice, but when the fullness of time had come, it was purposeful. There was a time that God ordained that Christ would come, and he came at precisely the right time. In each of these instances, Jesus, Jesus was not late. He came precisely when he meant to. And because we know that there's no variation or shadow of turning in God himself, we can trust that he will answer our prayers and act in our lives and the lives of our loved ones at precisely the right time as well. And so therefore, as we wait on the Lord, I encourage all of us that the meditation of our hearts be as David's was in Psalm 31, verse 14, where he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. That's the vision that we need to have of God. His timing is always right. Remember that when those seeds of doubt begin to plague your heart. So God's timing is perfect. But the second truth that we get from this passage is that God's love is uncommon. Years ago, when I was a kid, I watched way too much TV, and I should have been much more studious. But because of my time in, on TV, I have lots of memories of the things that I watched. And one of the shows I watched back in the 70s was a sitcom called MASH. And there was a character on there named Major Frank Burns. He was this quirky character. And I remember just this one particular episode where he, uh, he is introduced to this vivacious, very pretty uh, uh, woman that's brought to the camp that day. And, uh, and she just is, you know, all excited to be there. She's this young whippersnapper. And uh, she basically says, he says, I love being here. Everyone is being so nice. And uh, Frank Burns, in his awkward way, says, it's nice to be nice to the nice. <laughs> and I recite that line in the first instance because it's actually a true statement, you know, from the lips of Frank Burns, a bit of wisdom. You know, it's a, it is a nice thing to be nice to people who are nice, right? 
And additionally, it's also an easy thing to be nice to people who are nice, right? I mean, when we meet someone who's genuinely friendly and pleasant and kind-hearted, it's not a stretch for us to be kind-hearted and nice back. It just is almost a natural response that we have. And I found that the same is also true regarding our expression of love towards others. It's easy to be loving towards that which is lovable, isn't it? It doesn't take any real effort on our part. It just kind of comes naturally. We have the example of my daughter's dog, Desi. Desi is a Welsh corgi. When Desi runs into the room, it's almost as if she has a smile on her face. And she is just so excited to see you. Everyone she sees, she is just right there jumping on you and just so excited. You cannot help but to love this little animal. It's just it's a natural response. It's a common love. In God's economy, that kind of love, unfortunately, it doesn't earn you any kind of special award or commendation. That's because this kind of love that loves people and things that are easy to love is actually found in all of humanity. As I just said, it's a common love, uh, abundantly seen within the realm of God's common grace over all the world. There are exceptions, of course, but for the most part, all of us in our natural state find it easy to love that which is lovely and that which we feel is loving towards us. And Jesus makes reference to this common love and, dare I say, unimpressive love in his Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these words in chapter 5. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, I use the word unimpressive, and that's because it seems to be the very point that Jesus is making in this passage. It's not that he's discounting this kind of love or saying that it doesn't have its rightful and important place in human relationships. It does. It clearly does, and it's absolutely important. But there's nothing special or exemplary about that kind of love. It is a common love. One that's found in all of mankind, redeemed and unredeemed, on a daily basis. You know, on occasion you might hear of an instance where someone does an especially heroic and self-sacrificing deed for a stranger, but for the most part, most people, most of our, excuse me, most of our experience with love is common societal love. However, the love that God expresses is a truly uncommon love. And we see this in verse 8 in our passage. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love that's common is one that's expressed towards those who are easy to love and who we feel deserve to be loved. But here we see that God shows his love towards the unloved towards rebels who deserve nothing but what? Judgment. The expression of love that's in view here is the cross. That is the expression of love. It's the cross, Christ crucified. And who is the focus of that love in this instance? Sinners, otherwise known in this passage as weak, ungodly enemies, all of whom would clearly be characterized as being undeserving of this love by worldly standards. 
Now, this is a, clearly a love that's unreasonable to our fallen natures. It's beyond comprehension. And yet it's precisely the kind of love that God expresses. And here's the kicker. As his called out ones, as those who have been made in his image, as those who have been fed by his word, as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the call of love that he calls each one of us to, an uncommon love that matches what he has done for humanity. First, and there are two, there are two directions regarding this. First, that uncommon love is to be expressed towards the family, those within the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we are called to express a sacrificial love one to another within our body and within the body of Christ at large. In real and tangible ways, it's how we testify to the world that we are genuine followers of Christ. He even calls us to that in John chapter 13, right? That the world may know that you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. But then, this uncommon love is not only to be expressed towards the family, but here's the real stretch. This uncommon love is to be expressed towards our foes, the world. Matthew 5 again. Jesus' words, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that seems like a common thing to do, right? It's pretty easy for us to do. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said that. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, we acknowledged earlier that it's easy to love the lovely and to hate our enemies. That's an easy thing. That's a natural thing for all of us to do. But God calls us to an uncommon life and an uncommon love. One that expresses agapeo. That's the word here. We know that word, agape. That's the word love being used here that Jesus is telling us needs to be expressed towards our enemies. It's the same love that is used when Jesus recites the two great commandments in Matthew 22, where he says, Love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as yourself. That word love in both of those instances, the exact same word for love is used here for loving your enemies. There is no distinction. It's the love that is unnatural to us and therefore uncommon in the world and one of the very things that sets us apart from the unredeemed world. The unredeemed world cannot even fathom trying to exercise anything like this. And it's this uncommon love that Jesus points to in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Jews and Samaritans are the characters in that story. There are no good guys here. They both hated each other. And yet Jesus, in the telling of the story, makes the Jewish enemy, the Samaritan, the one who exercises this uncommon love. Because what does he do? He sees his enemy, the Jew, beaten on the side of the road, and he sacrifices his own 
both uh, the, uh, the possibility of his own life as well as his own means in order to care for this enemy that needed help. He expressed uncommon love towards that man. And then what does Jesus do at the end of that story to the smug lawyer who even challenged him on it? He says to, you, to that lawyer and to each one of us, you go and do likewise. That's our standard. That's the call of what it means to be a follower of Christ. This can be exceedingly challenging for us, especially in the day and age that we live right now. If we got a roundtable discussion going in this room, we would find it very easy to rattle off all of the enemies that we perceive in our lives. I mean, just even think about just We'll just keep it in the context of, of what we see happening culturally and all the forces arrayed in destroying what we have enjoyed in this country for so long that was built on a Judeo-Christian heritage. All of that under assault by forces that, that intentionally want to up, create such an upheaval and turn that all upside down. Homosexuality transvestites, drag queens, abortionists, unscrupulous politicians, criminals, drug cartels, terrorists, the list goes on. Every time that I say each one of those words, all of us, I'm sure, has at least some visceral reaction within our hearts that we find it very easy to hate those people because of what they're doing. Now we, of course, hate the sin and the corruption that they're propagating, but Christ's call to us is to also see past this veneer, this thing that they are standing behind and supposedly expressing forth as their worldview. We need to see that they are captives. They are POWs, if you will, prisoners of war. They have been captive, taken captive by the enemy of our souls. They are without hope in this world. They are blind and dead. As they are, so we once were. That's a good line to remember when we're thinking of these matters. As they are, so we once were. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we could just as easily be in that camp. The call is to see past that and to... It's like um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I don't have to like them, but I am called to love them with the love that Christ calls us to. And at any level, at, at, at the level that I think that we, that we need to really keep in mind is that we need to see them as people who are lost and are desperately in need of a Savior. That is how we pray for them. And that is how we respond to them in this world, seeing them as captives that must be saved. And so the question arises, do I love them? I can say for myself, oftentimes, no. I get very angry when I think of that. Can I love them? I say that I trust in Christ. I believe God's word, that I am filled with his Holy Spirit, and that I've been redeemed. I have the ability. I'm empowered to do that. The question is, will I love? Uh, that's an act of the will now. We're not robots. We do have a response here. So, things to think about regarding this matter. 
And I just want to give you, uh, I'll tell you a very brief story uh, of a modern, a relatively modern day example of what this could look like. Some of you may know it, but I'll recite it and indulge me in the moment. Um, it's the story of Sabina Wormbrand. Sabina Wormbrand was the wife of uh, Richard Wormbrand. He's a Lutheran pastor, and they were uh, uh, in Romania during uh, the time of the Second World War. They were both of Jewish descent, but they came to faith. That in and of itself is an amazing story. Um, but Sabina's family was killed uh, by the Nazis uh, in Romania. They were taken to a place called Wisteria, or uh, excuse me, Transmistra. And at that place, they, uh, her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother were all killed there. The man who was most likely the culprit behind their deaths was a name, man by the name of Borilla. Borilla was a giant of a man, exceedingly angry and just deprived, or depraved, excuse me. And uh, he was the chief uh, Jew killer, if you will, in this area of Transmistra. And he happened to be back in Bucharest where the Wormbrands were living. He came back to that area for a time of leave, if you will, during the war. And he happened to be in the apartment complex where the Wormbrands were living. Uh, the landlord of the, of the complex had this man in uh, for coffee or whatever they were having. And uh, Richard Wormbrand heard about this, so he went up and visited with this man, Barilla. And in the conversation, he actually learned that this man, Barilla, was quite agitated and very, very angry. Um, he loved Ukrainian folk songs. He happened to hear them at some point in his life, and he just longed to hear Ukrainian folk songs. And Richard Wormbrand says to him, why don't you come to my apartment and I'll play some folk songs. I know a few. I, uh, I'll be happy to play them for you. So they go back to his apartment, and he plays quietly. Now, this is at night. This is, I don't know, past midnight, I'm sure. And he's playing quietly. His wife is in the other room. Sabina's in the other room sleeping. And as he's playing, he sees this, this barilla, this giant of a man, is finally at some level of peace. Um, and then during the course of his playing this music, he stops, and uh, Richard looks at barilla, and he says to him, uh, you know, you said that you were the Jew killer in, uh, in Transmistra, and it is very likely that you are the killer of my wife's sisters and parents and 12-year-old brother. And when he confronted him with this, Barilla was enraged. It says that he got up and he was just seething at this. And Richard Wormbrand puts his hand up. He says, now, now wait a minute. He says, let's do an experiment. He says, um... Uh, I'm going to, uh, to go in and, and tell my wife that you're here and that you are the killer of, of his family, of her family. And um, I will tell you that when she comes out, she will do nothing but embrace you and kiss you, and she will serve you food. I promise you that. And this gorilla is just taken aback by this. And, uh, and he says... And she's going to do that to you because of what Christ has done for her. And then in his words, he says, If she, an imperfect sinner, can forgive in that way, how much more will Jesus, who is perfect love, forgive you of every sin? So he, test, he, testifies, he testifies the gospel to this man, Barilla.
well, this, you can tell by the agitation that there has been something working with this man. And by Wormbrand's account, it says that this Barilla breaks down in tears. He is just so agitated, he, he begins to break down in tears and in, in great remorse starts asking for forgiveness for what he has done. And during a period of time that Wormbrand was able to minister to him, he receives Christ by faith in that moment. It's an absolutely remarkable story. Then Wormbrand says, you wait and I will show you what I promised you would happen. So he goes into the other room and his wife is sound asleep. And he wakes her up and he tells her exactly what happened. This man who is the killer of your family is out in our living room. And he's just received Christ. It said, and this is his words, She came out in her nightgown and put out her arms to embrace him. They both began to weep and kiss each other again and again. I have never seen bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. And then she went to the kitchen and served him food. That is a stretch. I tried to put myself in that position. If I was in a place like she was, where my daughters were destroyed by some maniac, would that have been my response to embrace this man? You know, at Calvary, God proved to the watching world that his love was an uncommon love. And now his call to his people is that they too express a love that is equally uncommon to this fallen and wicked world. And it's all for his glory and his honor. And ultimately, we pray for their salvation. So, we've seen the truth that God's timing is perfect. And we've seen the truth that God's love is uncommon. And we'll wrap up here with the third truth that is revealed to us in this passage. And that is that God's deliverance is certain. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in these verses, Paul makes the case that God's people can be at rest and at peace because in the cross of Christ, they've been given the full assurance that they've been delivered from God's judgment and condemnation. And he does it by appealing to a logical conclusion that you come to when you consider what God has already done for us. Since it's true that we've been made right, justified in God's eyes, by the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, right? since that his, the shedding of his blood was effective to do that, how much more true is it that we will be saved from God's wrath? In other words, if he accomplished the first thing with Christ's blood, our justification, how can God not save us from his wrath? It's impossible. If God did the lavish thing of justifying us by the sacrifice of his son, he will not stop there. He will go all the way and even beyond that blessing and make sure that he saves us from eternal judgment and condemnation. 
And Paul then points that same assurance out in verses 10 and 11. If God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, how is it possible that he will fall short in saving us? It isn't possible. Because we are already reconciled to God, which is a present tense reality. We are reconciled. It even says it at the end of verse 11. We are reconciled. And because Christ lives in victory over darkness by virtue of his resurrection, we too will be saved eternally. It is certain. It is guaranteed. And again, not because of anything that we did by adding to it, but because of everything that Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. So there it is. The three truths about God that are revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in this passage. God's timing is perfect. God's love is uncommon. God's deliverance is certain. And I just encourage you to meditate on these incredible truths. And then ascribe to God and our Redeemer the glory due his name. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and the way you reveal to us everything about yourself, Lord, that we can grasp. <laughs> thank you for the great gift of knowing that, Lord, you are never late or early, but you're always on time. Thank you for the gift of knowing, Lord, that you love with an uncommon love and that you've given us the ability to do the same. And thank you, Lord, that our deliverance is sure, that we need not worry if we are ever not in right standing with you, Lord, because of Christ, we know that that is a sure, sure thing. So thank you for such a great word to us this morning that encourages our hearts and, as we said earlier, gives us every reason to worship you more and more out of the depths of our hearts. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.